Hi, I'm Alexia Jacques Casanova, and you are listening to Do It Different, a podcast by Communicating the Arts in which I talk to artists and leaders from the cultural sector about their professional trajectories, their most successful failures, and what they've learned from those. So you can too learn from their experiences. My guest today, who spoke at Communicating the Arts in 2018 in Brussels, for those of you who attended, has only just recently joined the arts world. We discussed active listening and learning the language of inclusion. And we also talked about his ultimate fail, one that still gives him night sweats. I'm James Brandon. I'm a diversity inclusion manager at Tate Art Galleries. And I've been at Tate Art Galleries around three years. Uh, my career has not been in the arts, so this is one of my first arts roles. And it's a career that's focused mostly in community practice. A lot of my time was spent in Scotland, and only recently, uh, about five years ago, did I move to London and make that move. My roles have been in many different types of sectors, including the community sector, mental health sector, leisure, and sport. So to come to Tate, It was very, very new. <laughs> Fundamentally, my kind of practice that I have evolved in my career has been around creating civic spaces. Now, whether that looks like uh, a community mental health service, talking to LGBT people and asking them around, what is, it, what is mental health services for you and what do you need from mental health services and how is that different to non-LGBT people? It might look like... Um, a local leisure centre, which has had a huge investment from the public recently, but is not having local people participate in its, uh, in its activities. Or it might be that you have this huge investment in a sports facility, which only the richest 1% are accessing, and those who live next door to it don't feel like it's for them. Mm. So you said you, you come from a sports uh, sector and mental health sector. Can you talk a bit more about those previous experiences and maybe what you learned from those experiences that is becoming uh, useful in your current job in the at the Tate? Oh yeah, there's a there's quite a few things I think that I've brought with me from those sectors. Um, in this idea of um, platforming individuals and voices and addressing barriers, the the actual process isn't very far away in the different sectors is very much about engaging a group and creating a space where somebody a trusted space where somebody will actively talk about why something isn't for them or the experience or how they feel marginalized by a power or a program when you say space is it always a physical space or not necessarily no not necessarily i think um it's a very abstract Uh, concept I think the idea of space and space can be yes you have 12 people sat in a room and telling you about their experiences because you've created a focus group or it's a space because somebody has taken the activism to come to you as an individual and say look this is not good enough for me anymore or it's a digital space because you've done a mass qualitative quantitative survey all the way through to how somebody might respond to to something on Twitter or social media. These are all spaces. And I think um, one of the interesting things is having created many different types of spaces. 
So the art of gathering people together to listen to them is kind of a fundamental uh, a fundamental priority for those spaces. Now that art of gathering can either be physical, digital, or it can be something even something different. It could be even a critical art space. Mm. Now it still sounds very abstract, but fundamentally the whole point is about listening and actively listening to somebody and almost exiting your own ideas before you enter that space. But creating psychological safety in those spaces is equally important because if you really, what you need in those spaces is for people to be very honest and open, but also to trust that you're going to take what they're saying and go away and do something with that. Mm. So at Tate, one of my one of my programs is to work with our staff networks and where we bring different groups together who share an equality characteristic and try to advance and reduce the marginalization that they might feel by being in the institution. So definitely my experience in sport, leisure and mental health has helped to shape how I'm doing that at Tate. Yeah. Yeah. The second area I think is determination for sure. The there's some very difficult experiences, particularly in the sport world, where trying to improve representation of different people, different communities, was really tough. Um, I play rugby. Anyone who's seen me in physical shape at one of the conferences will know I look like a forward, a rugby forward. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, but I'm also a gay man. And so there's always, uh, when people find about those two two strands of my identity that they they almost have a head tilt to say oh you play you play rugby what does that mean what I don't understand because their idea I look like their idea of a rugby player but I maybe Mm. look like their idea of a gay man so when they're trying to knit those two senses together they will often then ask me questions like oh I didn't think gay people played sport or uh, Mm. what happens in the changing rooms or how you know um when where can you possibly play sport but then yeah where I think the determination came through is when when I was working in sport when someone actually then turned to me and said oh but what happens if you take a blood injury and in their mind that was because all gay people had AIDS wow they were an elderly trustee they were sort of an older board trustee on a board and those Mm. what I recognize very straight away is that people hold these biases and they don't know where they've developed their their knowledge from, but they have, you know, they in trying to knit a new normal for themselves, they then ask these questions which are clunky and offensive. Mm, absolutely. So definitely, that's one of the areas of determination is is the, right, how do I as an individual look past somebody who says something that's offensive and because they have a limited knowledge and and definitely what I learned is that people only know what they know. Mm. And I heard a, I heard a great speaker called Galen Gould, who who works at the BFI, British Film Institute, who talks about how people who hold a characteristic have a PhD level knowledge of what it's like to live as a gay man, as a, a disabled person, as a parent. You have a PhD knowledge. If you don't hold those identities, you come to it with a nursery level understanding. Yeah. And there's there is this, my practice has always been about coaching people. Not to all be PhD knowledge holders, but to mm. definitely move them away from the nursery field. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you talked about active listening and saying that this is kind of uh, crucial. 
in the work that you do and in uh, building more uh, inclusive institutions. But how how do you become an active listener? What is active listening? Ah, well, <laughs> I think that's a great question because I think people will think they are good listeners, mm-hmm. but there is something different being able to to listen and to actively listen. Um, actively listening really requires quite a mindful approach where you need to be mindful of your own biases, your own experiences, your own ex- lived experience, your own privilege and your own position of power and to somehow detach yourself from that so that you are almost a blank canvas mm. that somebody could talk to and that you're not going to be, for instance, challenging their views or challenging their own experiences with your own, but it's a taking on board their truth. Now, following any form of consultation or form of ideas, you can reflect on that and then challenge, you know, and think about, well, how does this work in practice? Or what is it? But but for me, the active listener is somebody who is asking open questions, so very open questions of participants to share their experiences, not challenging experience. This is everyone who sat and is sharing is giving you their truth. So it's absorbing that truth mm. and then reflecting on that outside of that space. Mm. So you said you, uh, you've you been at the Tate for three years, is that right? Yeah, three years. Yes, okay. And what what would you say has been your biggest challenge since joining the cultural sector and the Tate? On a personal level, I think the biggest challenge has been a massive imposter syndrome. Oh, really? Why? Yes, yeah. I massively have felt like an imposter in a sector um, that was so different to everything I had done before. And I think I've been trying to reflect on exactly why that was. So previously, you know, I have worked in civic spaces and it, you know, my practice was about, right, okay, well, you, we're a mental health service. How does how do you as a community want this mental health service to run? Okay, let's inform the decision-making process. Mm. So actually the practice of coming into an arts institution isn't any much different, but there was something very intimidating about the idea of academic value and and will I hold up to that? Will I stand, will I be able to Mm. um, stand up to that academic value? Because lots of names and terminology and this wave of history that was, that I was stepping into Mm. um, felt very, very um, intimidating into a certain extent and, and holding my voice against, so, you know, some people who are the, the, the height of their field was, was felt very, took a lot for me to be thinking the other thing about the coming into these this sector is that the institution in the cultural sector is so complex it's it's more complex than any any organization i've worked in before you know any one art gallery or museum is a it's a mini university with students doing phds it's a library holding archives it's a shop yeah it's an office it's a tourist attraction it's a culture maker Hmm. it's a volunteer organization but it's all amalgamated into this one big organization that's called an institution and actually it's taken me a long time to think about well we can't keep treating this one institution as one solution each individual element has to have a has to have time and reflection because you what you need to do with a curatorial department might not need what you need to do with a visitor experience team. 
Mm. And so any one of these pieces in an institution is going to be hard and resource heavy to make change within. And then I think the third challenge, the massively third challenge for working at Tate is the level of corporate critique that comes with working at a brand like Tate. Mm. Um, There's definitely something for me is the idea of corporate resilience and having to to really be able to, uh, you know, people will criticise and critique Tate because of the brand awareness that comes with that name. Yeah. Um, And I think I maybe sort of, I didn't really know about that before coming into this sector is the, is the, the kind of public private um, critique critiques of institutions and particularly national institutions. Mm, Absolutely. uh, Which I mean, even, even, you know, I was at the conference in Canada. Okay, so for those of you who are not part of the Agenda family, what James is talking about here is the Communicating the Arts conference that took place in Montreal in November 2019. Okay, back to the interview. It was such a wonderful time in Montreal. And then, but even then, I know that other people on different platforms on, during the day, for instance, because we'd had a big issue around access in the summer, yeah. were talking about Tate. <laughs> and I was on another platform talking about all this great work we'd be doing around mental health. Mm. So for me, it's taken a lot to kind of, um, I had no idea that this, that this might be the sort of the critical thinking that goes on in this sector Yeah, um, is a really important part of it. Mm, Yeah, you're much more under the spotlight than you used to be, maybe. Yeah. Mm, I see. And in those three years that you've worked at the Tate, is there anything you wish you would have done differently? Well, plenty. There's plenty. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think um, I was quite lucky because I saw early on that my imposter syndrome was going to get in my way um, because... I could instantly start to feel my confidence and my voice be reduced in certain meetings. Mm. In particular, I think in curatorial meetings, in executive meetings, just because I felt an imposter in that space. I felt that Mm. um, my lack of a PhD in art history or even a degree in art history (laughs) um, meant that I had lesser value. And and this is not something that people imposed on me. This was a self-imposed view. and I really was lucky because at the same time, um, the Museum Association for the UK had launched a Transformers program. And this was a, a mid-career program to network with career professionals. And I joined that program very early on in my three years and very quickly realized the power of having a network around me mm. and how important that was going to be. Both just to somebody who I can go, ah, I don't know what I'm doing here, to oh, it's been really hard this week. <laughs> Shall we go for a wine, please? Yeah. Uh, to saying, oh, I'm thinking about this change and, and I'm not sure how it's going to land because I'm bringing it from the third sector, a voluntary sector of approach. Could you have a look at it and see what you think? Mm. And within that program, I also got a mentor. And then the mentor I thought was just such a powerful relationship that helped me. Um and that was with uh, a wonderful woman called Kim Thomas, who works at the BBC, okay. who both provided me advice and support, in particular about how to grow my confidence, but the corporate resilience piece, because the BBC is another sort of national institution here who receives quite a lot of critique. Yeah. But they also then at some times just told me some hard truths, like that I just need to, to get on with something. <laughs> mm. I, need, I need to, you know, I need to think about it. I need to drive forward. 
So if I was to do anything differently, I think it would have been, it would be to do that much earlier, much quickly. To get into that network earlier? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I see. And any advice anyone going into the sector would be, would be definitely to, to draw your people or your tribe together so that you know who to lean on and you can be a person people can lean on too. Yeah. Um, because at times it can be hard in this sector when we are having conversations around colonialism and mental health and structural racism. And we are having then also conversations around, okay, what is it like to um, be queer in this sector? What is it like? How does my mental health work in this sector? Conversations which are easy. They're not meant to be easy because they are systematic issues. Yeah. Um but they do require a lot of emotion and a lot of energy that, mm. um, you know, you need people around you to be able to refill that emotional tank and to, to be able to draw upon. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Um, and what would you say, and that can be uh, before Tate, so even, you know, in your previous experiences or even maybe personal life, what would you say was your most successful failure and by that, I mean the one from which you learned the most. Well, I think uh, one of the, I would say, biggest failures I've had that I always, to this day, still gives me night sweat, <laughs> was when I was running a program for disabled children in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And this program, there was a real lack of physical education and physical activity opportunity for disabled children in Edinburgh mm-hmm. uh, due to just the way funding streams had worked. And I was setting up this brand new project, which was was to basically provide Saturday afternoon youth clubs, and that those youth clubs were aiming to respite for carers. So we would, so children could come to us, their parents could go and have some respite, um, and we would look after them. And I, I, I was so pleased with this project. I'd got a lot of funding for it. I had it marketed really well. We had a waiting list and waiting list, and we had great community connections going on. We had all the staff with the expertise. They were all trained. My own training was coming into a was was around uh, disability sport was coming through. I, I felt very confident with the project. Mm-hmm. And then I was on a phone call with one parent. Now their child had global delay syndrome, alongside a number of other. Um, complex needs okay um and within that conversation I started to use the term palliative care Mm -hmm. and I have no idea why I was using that term uh I thought I felt like I picked it up and was really trying to talk about how are we going to look after your child but to this mother what I was actually talking about was end of life care oh my god Yes. And in my head, I was like, oh, no, what I, I th- I'm trying to use a word that I think is paternalistic and is 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 about, right, what do we need to be putting into your place? And so this mother was being very kind and very nice to me going, OK. And then at one point she goes, why are you talking about end of life care for my child in this session? And at that point right there, and it's as you can see, that's why it gives me night sweats to this day is like, oh. how could I have possibly been doing that? How could I have? Um, what was I thinking? <laughs> mm. um, and it was at that point that why I see it as a successful failure is because it showed me the power of language. Absolutely. And the importance of precision mm. when we are talking particularly around identity, when we're t- particularly talking about need and having definitions to hand of these types of words. What actually happened there was that I didn't have a, enough knowledge. Yeah. 
and used a term that I shouldn't have used. Mm. So for now, for what is made what it's definitely made me do more of is to be very precise in my language. Mm. Uh, think about the power of language. Mm. A lot of people get tied up when we talk about diversity inclusion around language and they, they use it almost as a smoke screen of, uh, oh, I, I can't talk about this identity because I'm scared I'm going to get the language wrong and then someone's going to hate me for it. Mm. Um, and particularly when we, when we have conversations about race, you know, the difficulty we have around differentiating differentiating definitions of racism Mm. and structural racism and racist behavior has meant that basically we don't talk about any of it because people are so scared they're going to get it wrong yeah so using the right language or creating maybe those spaces that you were talking about earlier so that people can learn about the right language and educate themselves uh, about the right language to use I think so, and I, I, that is that self-education piece, which I think is the right important is the important thing there. You know, you're only going to learn the language if you make the effort to go out and and read uh, mm. uh, other literature. If you're going to read stories from marginalized authors, if you're going to watch TV shows which represent otherness to you, mm. if you, you know, this is not about having an encyclopedia in front of you or having a guide document that said oh, you know, you should use this word and you shouldn't use this word. It's about an awareness of how, why would you choose a word, the context of that word and how, what you could be using mm. uh, rather than what I had maybe done at the time when I was young and only 24 at the time. So uh, <laughs> it was a while ago. Um, but, you know, I ran at that project and I ran at that, that, that conversation and I didn't take the time and the breath that I needed to. Mm. I see. And I think, if I remember right, I have a photo of this on my phone. I think at the Tate, you have signs in the galleries that say that if as a visitor, I see something that I find upsetting, whether it is in the labels or in the way uh, the Tate's communicating that I should make it known. I think I saw that uh, must have been like a year or so ago. Do you still have those? Yeah, so so one of the things that we've re- reflected on is that as an organisation, we're working to diversify the whole work the workforce and represent all the communities in which we we serve and operate. Now, we as many art institutions don't have the diversity in which we we have an ambition for, um, but which which means that we read our work and we read our histories in a certain light. We have a certain way of reading that. So what we've what we realised very uh, over the last few years is that we needed to to hear from more voices and we needed to be called out public you know by the public or be at least acknowledged by our visitors who often will come to Tate because they have an ownership of Tate and they want to see Tate improve and they want to feel aligned with Tate so if they come in and they find a, a piece of interpretation text that actually is erasing a trans history or it's ableist in its nature or it's um as you say they're offensive you know we needed that we need to have a way that they can let us know because otherwise the what will happen is that they may go away and go oh takes just this organization it's not changing mm. um when, i see you know we actually want to and we want to really reflect on those on those choices and also learn as an institution we have to learn even though we are quite i would like i would call us elderly yeah <laughs> but we are uh, you know we've been around a long time 
you know, learning is continuous and continue, you know, as we would in our professional lives, we need to do that as an institution that learn continuously and make changes. So do you train your colleagues? How, how does your work um, influences uh, the institutions from the inside? Well, I'm only one person, so I only I don't have a team yeah. of people. Uh, <laughs> I'm one person, and I, uh, I have the support of an administrator. So, for a long time, we've invested in my role as a kind of strategic role. So, what a typical day might look like for me is um, I have emails that in the morning just people ask me specific questions or asking for resources. Mm-hmm. I deliver training, so I might be delivering. Um, or providing training on different topics, whether that's inclusion at Tate or it is, or it is around uh, the Equality Act or it's around discrimination. But what's really important there actually is to say that I'm not an expert in every different type of identity. And I think one of the biggest things that I've had to do at Tate is to say, you know, I might be labelled a diversity inclusion manager, but that does not make me an expert on race, on disability, on what my job is to do is to bring those experts and manage resources so that those experts can come in and provide that information because one person cannot possibly be an expert in everything. Mm. So my role is to manage those resources so that, so for instance, we have a structural racism training session. So I commission that training, but work with mm-hmm. uh, with race experts to do that. Uh, we have disability confidence training, which I work with um trusted partners on that so my role is to really to make sure that that happens but it's not to necessarily deliver that all the time i see and trying to learn from others is the key thing we don't have all the answers mm. uh, and i certainly i certainly don't uh, <laughs> but what we do is the opportunity to to try things and if it doesn't work it's good that's good learning as much as if something does work really well and i always found that that agenda does really well is that idea of come together, share what you're doing and, and allow and inspire others to think about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely the two conferences and the two conferences I've been involved with, they have, they have been such think tanks um, and, and ways of connecting across the world, these ideas, because, you know, I have a UK context, but also a European context and a, a global context. And it's been yeah. the great thing around Agenda is, is coming into contact with someone from Australia who's doing a very similar piece of work and we've come at it without any contact before and then we're able to innovate in that way lovely i'm so glad to hear that (laughs) like with many other interviewees you've heard and will hear in this podcast this season we recorded during the covid19 lockdown i asked james what he had learned from this situation and the changes he was hoping to see in the field oh heaps i think i think this there's so much that I've tried to keep the whole way through a very uh, a sort of positive mindset through this approach, which has been very tough because this is a very hard time for so many people. Um, mm. What I've mass- what I definitely think has been a learning through this point is that we're starting to see mental health has now parity with physical health. Um, this universal experience of um, that everybody is going through at the same time it means that we are going to see people be able to talk about their mental health much more openly. People will be able to talk about the stress of being confined, of what isolation means, Mm. of what it means, the impact of sleep, what it means to the pressures of home, trauma, grief. Um, These things are going to be unifying in a way 
Um, you know, people, we're not really working from home right now. We are at home during a crisis trying to work. So it's very much going to be a learning experience around how do we support mental health? How do we think about psychological health and safety as institutions, as organizations? Yeah. And I've definitely been thinking about that as we we start to hopefully put those planning processes in place for coming back. You know, what do what does a physical return to work look like? If people uh, want to find you online, where where can they find you? So you can drop me an email at james.brandon at tate.org.uk. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn under James Brandon. Uh, and my Twitter and Instagram are jb underscore d and i. We are reaching the end of this episode. I hope you will forgive some of the spoken grammatical errors I have made during this interview. To make it up to you, I have listed a few key learnings from my conversation with James. Number one, create trust spaces. Whether they be digital or physical, your audience needs a space where they feel psychologically safe and where they can express how marginalized this program or that line of text in your exhibition made them feel. Number two, be an active listener. Ask open-ended questions to the person in front of you and do not challenge their experience because they're giving you their truth. Number three, be precise about language especially around identity and make the effort to learn the language of inclusion. Also, don't walk away from addressing those issues because you fear you might offend someone by using the wrong language. It's all about practicing, listening, learning and adapting. This podcast is brought to you by Communicating the Arts, a global network of cultural leaders who gather three times a year in Europe, North America and the Pacific. You can tweet at us using the Do It Different hashtag or the Communicating the Arts hashtag. If you want to go further, we also craft and deliver high quality online masterclasses called Best Practices for Cultural Leaders. Linda Butler from the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco and Magnus Westofter from the Royal Danish Theatre are just two of the great superstars we've gathered to lead those online masterclasses. So if you want to know more or to register, go on communicatingthearts.com. This show is hosted and produced by me for Communicating the Arts. It is mixed and edited by Kevin Kelly, who also wrote and performed our theme song. If you like what you heard, subscribe on Spotify, Anchor or wherever you listen to your podcast. And you can also rate our show so that more people can find it and enjoy it. Thanks a lot for spending some time with us. We'll be back in two weeks for a brand new and exciting episode.